Sidactic Residency Edition. Today is Tuesday, May 16th, 2023, and I am Dr. O'Leary. Right now, I am six weeks away from starting my fourth year of psychiatry residency in the National Capital Region. This is a podcast about psychiatry and neuroscience, and if you haven't been here before, I welcome you. Today, I'm continuing an intermittent series called In a Word. And the word that I chose for today is akathisia. Or akathisia. Akathisia. I've heard it pronounced many ways, and uh, I haven't really spoken it so much as I have read it. So if I switch back and forth between pronunciations, please forgive me. This podcast is just me trying to make sense of things that I struggle to understand. What I say here, then, is just my opinion. As informed or uninformed as it might be, it is definitely not the opinion of anyone else, and that includes the federal government, the Department of Defense, the Defense Health Agency, or the Universities of California. If you keep listening to the end of this episode, you'll understand why I included the Universities of California, in the disclaimer this time. According to StatPearls in the National Library of Medicine's online database, akathisia is defined as an inability to remain still. Psychiatrists are most aware of this condition because it is sometimes associated with antipsychotics, or most of the time associated with antipsychotics, and we think that it has something to do with D2 or dopamine uh, type 2 receptor blockade because it's a common side effect of antipsychotics that tend to have an affinity for D2 receptors. However, it appears much more complex than that. If you remember back to an episode that I did about the corticostriamothalamocortical tract in the brain, D2 receptors, or D2-expressing neurons, help us to coordinate movements in the striatum. But these neurons are also modulated by glutamatergic, serotonergic, cholinergic, and noradrenergic pathways. Somehow, messing around with striatal neurons in one way or another, results in a constant movement. And this is different from like the large choreoform movements that you see in Huntington's disease or like the tremors that you see in Parkinson's disease. If you ask someone with akathisia to stop moving, they'll likely become very uncomfortable. But while they're moving, they might experience uh, at least some partial relief. It's curious that constant fidgeting and movement is also a common symptom of individuals with a hyperactive type of ADHD. We might ask candidate patients if, for ADHD if they feel restless, like they're driven by a motor. They might fidget or squirm constantly or have a hard time sitting still. And sometimes occupational therapists will recommend that kids uh, diagnosed with this disorder be given fidget toys like spinners in school to help keep them focused 
um, or keep their focus on their need to move on an object that's not distracting, like getting up in class or moving around the classroom. They may also, at least these kids, be very uncomfortable when asked to sit still. However, the treatments for ADHD and akathisia are very different, and I don't want anyone to confuse the two things. There is little evidence to my knowledge that ADHD and akathisia share more than some superficial resemblance, even if they do share some common pathways. They are most definitely not caused by the same thing. Akathisia can be obvious to an observer or to the sufferer, but it also might be rather subtle. If you notice a large change in the amount of activity of the lower extremities of a patient who you've recently prescribed antipsychotics to, like they're sitting and kind of dancing to non-existent music while tapping their fingers, then that's really suspicious for akathisia. But what if they're just wandering around a ward or pacing their room? How sensitive is that for akathisia? I don't really know the answer to that question. Heather Thompson, when she was a doctoral candidate at the University of Southern Mississippi in 2021, published a doctoral project titled Implementation of an Akathisia Scale into the Mental Health Assessment to Screen for Early Onset Akathisia. She points out that the AIMS, or the Abnormal Involuntary Movement Scale, is less sensitive for akathisia than for dystonias, or tardive dyskinesia, in part because this scale is really designed to look for tardive dyskinesia. The items that might indicate akathisia instead are grouped together within the rest of a global score that doesn't indicate akathisia by itself. While akathisia and tardive dyskinesia are both movement disorders that are caused by the use of psychotropics, at least in some cases, or most cases, they are different entities and are treated differently. Tardive dyskinesia, or the dystonias that often accompany it, are often obvious in facial movements or in movements of the tongue or the mouth, but they can also be present in the extremities. However, akathisia is generally isolated to the extremities, especially the legs, but sometimes the arms. It's important then to use appropriate scales separately for early detection of akathisia. Heather Thompson recommends the BARS scale, or the Barnes Akathisia Rating Scale. She promotes this scale because akathisia is more than just a little annoying. It can result in a patient stopping an offending medication um, all on their own and then relapsing into psychosis, and it might also increase a patient's risk of suicide. But I'll get to that point later. When patients who take antipsychotics develop akathisia, one of the most effective ways to treat it is to just discontinue the offending medication and try another one. For example, 
a second-generation antipsychotic may be tried in lieu of a first-generation antipsychotic. But what if the patient's tried many medications and the one that they're on is the first one to actually improve their psychosis? One of the traditional methods to manage akathisia is to try to give anticholinergic medications, but these are not very effective. Giving Benadryl or benztropine will likely do little to treat your akathisia, but it might sedate your patient a little bit. A more effective strategy is to give beta blockers like propranolol because, well, we also think there might be some noradrenergic systems at play. But whether there are or not, giving beta blockers tends to be helpful. But it isn't always. When it's not effective, we can give benzodiazepines and they can have an overall dampening effect on the motor system. However, like long-term use of benzodiazepines in, in a patient on antipsychotics is generally not a good idea. There is also evidence that giving low-dose mirtazapine or trazodone might also help. What we do know is that when so many different kinds of drugs are given to help with one side effect or condition, um, there is likely more than one mechanism at play in the various individuals we're treating, and or we don't really understand the condition that we're treating that well. Akathisia can also be seen rarely with serotonergic or noradrenergic agents. Um, it's rarely reported with Stratera, which is more of a purely noradrenergic agent. Prozac and Zoloft were noticed to contribute to akathisia in some patients really early in their use. It's not isolated to antipsychotics. It is important to note as well that akathisia may or may not also be associated with severe or moderate anxiety in the individual. Rarely, individuals do not have any insight into what's happening until you ask them to try to stop moving and then they become extremely uncomfortable. But more often than not, they're already extremely uncomfortable. Acute and tardive akathisia may also have different mechanisms. Acute akathisia, or akathisia that starts pretty quickly after you start or increase a dose of an antipsychotic, usually responds to a reduction of the offending agent, or maybe to changing the agent. But tardive akathisia, or akathisia that arises late in the course of antipsychotic treatment, might worsen or even suddenly appear when the dose is reduced or a medication is stopped. There's even an entity called pseudo-akathisia, when a patient has symptoms of akathisia, but it's not bothersome to them at all. It's almost like they don't even notice it. This term is somewhat controversial. But what appears to be obvious is that there is something different going on in the striatum for those who have been on psychotics for a long time and those who more recently started them. The adaptations of striatal neurons are not well understood, but this difference suggests that D2 receptor blockade is really only part of the story. There is some balance between the signals in Reduced by D2 receptors and the density and relative responsiveness of other receptors on those neurons and on the neurons that are communicating with these neurons that also plays a role. 
Now it's my pleasure to talk about a study that was published on the 1st of July, 2023. Given that it is currently only May of 2023, I'm grateful to have this glimpse into the future. What this means, of course, is that this study has been released online, but it's not yet made it to print. The study is called Antipsychotic-Induced Akathisia in Adults with Acute Schizophrenia, a Systematic Review and Dose-Response Meta-Analysis. It is, or it will be, in the journal European Neuropsychopharmacology. This study included only one first-generation antipsychotic, haloperidol, and 16 second-generation antipsychotics. It also reported only on the acute phase of treatment of schizophrenia and not on um, tardive akathisia. In general, this study showed that there is a dose response for most antipsychotics with regards to the odds of reporting acute akathisia, but the odds of akathisia tend to increase at moderate doses and then often they'll just level out which means that for most drugs, if they are at a high dose, then simply lowering the dose to a moderate dose will not necessarily resolve the akathisia. Also, there were only three drugs that had high-quality evidence available um, to make predictions about uh, their response or the odds of akathisia. And the high-quality evidence was for haloperidol, risperidone, and catiapine. One of these, catiapine, had by far the lowest odds of akathisia, and risperdone had much lower odds than haloperidol. Catiapine and its metabolite norcatiapine, at different concentrations, together antagonize just about every kind of receptor, including like histaminic receptors, serotonergic receptors, muscarinic receptors, adrenergic receptors. Um, even NDMA receptors, and, of course, most of all, like dopamine receptors. It has particular affinities for different receptors at different doses. The only receptor that catiapine partially agonizes is the 5-HT1A receptor. So, like, given catiapine's really broad scope in the brain, it seems less likely overall to cause akathisia than any of the other psychotics because it's just like doing more things or not doing one thing, I guess you could say, as well as the other antipsychotics. There was one antipsychotic that curiously appeared not to plateau, which means that basically at higher doses, it appears always to increase the risk or the odds of akathisia. And this was lorazidone a.k.a. Latuda. So lorazidone is a, a full antagonist for dopamine type 2 receptors and serotonin 5-HT2A receptors and 5-HT7 receptors and a partial agonist for 5-HT1. There doesn't seem to be a good explanation for why more Latuda will almost always result in a higher odds of akathisia, but the statistics seem to suggest that. This study supports the idea that drugs in general that prefer D2 receptors have higher risks of causing akathisia than those that preferentially block like 5-HT2A first. Another paper, paper that I'm going to recommend is by Salem et al. in Current Neuropharmacology in 2017. 
and it's titled Revisiting Antipsychotic-Induced Akathisia, Current Issues and Perspective Challenges. It provides a very well-researched and easy-to-read review of this subject, and I especially recommend this paper to readers who would like a gateway into exploring the various neurobiological hypotheses of akathisia along with um, the treatment strategies. You can find all the references at the end of the show's transcript at sidactic.buzzsprout.com. Now let me get back to that risk of other bad things associated with akathisia like suicide that I mentioned earlier. It may seem obvious that akathisia, which can increase anxiety and result in shame or stigma, might also increase the risk of suicide or aggression in a patient. I explored the suicide claim in particular by following the citations in the papers that I've already mentioned, as well as trying out a literature search myself. What I found were merely case studies, and just a few of those, and that's really it. So this is not to say that suicide risk is not associated with akathisia, but I couldn't find high-quality evidence that it is. Regardless of whether akathisia increases the risk of violence or suicide, it is certainly unpleasant, and we should be aware of it and prevent it or treat it in our patients. It's not confined to patients using antipsychotics. Serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors are also associated with akathisia, though more rarely than antipsychotics, possibly because well, increasing serotonergic transmission can, under certain circumstances, also reduce dopamine transmission in the striatum. Before I leave you today, I want to give you an update on my journey using artificial intelligence. I wondered if ChatGPT or Google Bard had anything to say about this podcast. Um, so, I mean, I'm out there, so maybe... They've heard of me. I don't know. It's a little weird. Chat GPT, disappointingly, had never heard of the podcast Sidactic, which wasn't surprising because it's trained on static data sets that either didn't include me in the data or didn't find me interesting if they did. Um, what is funny is that Chat GPT did go on to talk about how. Well, maybe Psydactic was a play on words where Psy referred to psychology and Dactic uh, was a play on didactic and potentially referred to something that was uh, learning psychology, and which I thought was actually you know, pretty intuitive because that's what it was, and it was a play on words, and I didn't expect a uh, artificial intelligence to come up with that. But it didn't have anything to say about the podcast itself. Bard, on the other hand, which actually can search the internet, was more than willing to comment um, when I asked them to tell me about the podcast. And the results were amusing. So Bard identified me as Dr. Patrick O'Leary, which is not true, though an undoubtedly Irish. My name is Dr. Thomas Ryan O'Leary, or T. Ryan as I'm known by my signature line. Um, Bard also said that I am a psychiatrist and assistant professor of psychiatry at the University of California, which is also not true. Um, I am not. I am a psychiatry resident 
who has absolutely no official connection whatsoever with the universities of California. Um, Bard also went on to say, quote, The podcast covers a wide range of topics, including the latest research in psychiatry, clinical practice, and public policy. Sidactic is a valuable resource for anyone interested in learning more about psychiatry or mental health. I have tried to cover these topics, but whether Sidactic is a valuable resource is a bit more subjective. Bard here sounds like any of those like numerous sites you can go to to read about other things on the internet. So I think because it's trained on that sort of data, it just sounds like um, an internet site, honestly. Um, Bard went on to say, quote, In each episode, Dr. O'Leary interviews experts in the field of psychiatry to discuss a variety of topics, which is also just not true. I've only ever been able to convince a single other psychiatry resident from my program to come on the show, and only for one episode, so I, I don't do that regularly. Finally, Bard reported, Dr. O'Leary also hosts a Q&A segment at the end of each episode, where he answers questions from listeners about psychiatry and mental health. I have never had a Q&A segment. Maybe Bard is predicting the future. When AI makes up facts, this has been called hallucination, but I really don't like that term used that way. I think a better term is confabulation. Confabulation is when a person appears to be just making up facts, like say someone was brought into the hospital because they were disoriented in the local mall and um, they're there to be evaluated. But when you ask them why they're there, they say that they came in for a scheduled surgery. Um, their explanation, to at least to them, seems true and reasonable. It's very clear why they're there to them, but it's not at all true. Hallucinations, on the other hand, are sensory experiences that may or may not be experienced as true or real by the person experiencing them. No. The term confabulation, maybe versus hallucination, would make a really good in the word, but that would be for a future episode. Today, we've explored the term akathisia, or akathisia, or however you pronounce it, for better or for worse. This has been an episode of Sidactic Residency Edition.